You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm speaking with Laurie Kilmartin. She is a fantastic comic who, when you say of a comic that they can make anything funny, that is not often tested. But for Laurie, it has been uh, tested a couple of times. Not only did she release a fantastic comedy special called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, which if you are an aficionado of the sort of cliche dead dad shows that we see at the Edinburgh Festival, it is pretty much the opposite of that. It is proper snortingly funny club ready jokes. Club club ready? <laughs> of course they're ready for clubs. But jokes that work in clubs, it is like a really tight and very, very funny hour of stand-up with a focus far more on comedy and comic premises than on emotion, although there's a, a, a brief moment of emotion. Um, but not only that, uh, Laurie also very sadly, tragically lost her mother to COVID-19 early this year and live tweeted the experience of the long term experience of her final moments with her mother, the anticipation of her passing. And uh, it really has to be seen, has to be read, to be believed. It is heartfelt and heart wrenching and laceratingly funny as well so when I say that she's able to make anything funny um, it's not just that she can crack a brilliant topical gag in her position as a monologue writer for Conan O'Brien um, or indeed in her own stand-up but she is also able to find the funny in pretty much anything no insiders content this week but you can still join up at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all the extra content from any episode that has it although i stress not this one this week um laurie is a busy lady and i was very lucky to grab 55 minutes or so of her time uh, and also she's recording this at about 8 a.m local time just after setting her son uh doing his remote schoolwork. so very many thanks to laurie not only for coming on the show uh, but also for going over and above the call of duty in order to do it so without further ado this is laurie kilmartin you've worked as a writer on conan for how long now uh 10 years and you are what would you say how long had you been a stand-up before you started writing on conan i started stand-up in 1987 and uh, i got my first writing job in 2002 so i i did a lot of stand-up. Did you say 97? You must have said 97. 1987. You said 87. Wow. Yes. Okay. Uh Excellent. I think Mm -hmm. I've just inadvertently complimented you. Um, But uh, I thought I was sure you meant I'll take it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, so 87 and then your first writing job was? 2002. 2002. With with a show called Tough Crowd on Comedy Central. Okay. And it was hosted by Colin Quinn. And he had like, uh, he had a bunch of uh, comics that were seller regulars. Uh, Greg Giraldo, Patrice O'Neill, Rich Voss, Jim uh, Norton, Nick DiPaolo, uh, Judy Gold, etc. So it was sort of like a roundtable show. Okay, okay. Because something that really struck me, I listened to uh, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. Oh, okay. It is just a masterclass in comedy. I loved it. Oh, thank you. I loved how, uh, it's almost like, do you know what it made me think is if, 
if there are comedy writers listening to this, as I know there will be, before you sit down and write stand-up comedy, you should just put on Spotify and just have a five-minute, any five-minute chunk of that show. Because <laughs> oh, wow. the, it is clean as a whistle, right? Without being at all formulaic, I've found, like, this is, okay, these are, like, 45 starting points of actual observations about undergoing the death of your father, each one of which is beautifully expanded into a premise then expanded into an act out and then with a perfect word choice on the end it's like how to write comedy oh gosh thank you so much and so I wanted to I I wanted to ask how much of that if you agree with that interpretation and I'm forcing you to be (laughs) self-aggrandizing to agree with it but I wanted to ask you how much of that is informed by experience in a writer's room that you know what I mean? Whether there are some comics uh, who just basically do their act and grind out their jokes, and there are other comics who are much more um, uh, comprehensive in their approach to comedy because they have experience writing for numerous other voices. So I'm just interested in how much of a tool in your arsenal that has become, or in what way that's kind of sharpened that. Yeah, um, I think it had a big influence being a monologue joke writer, you know, where, uh, again, things are crazy now because of the pandemic and we don't have a crowd. But uh, for a significant part of my (laughs) time at Conan, I wrote jokes to be told in front of an audience. So um, I think at that point, we uh, that was the first time I was with a group of people working on like a single joke. Um, you know, like I, I would write one or the other writers would write one and we have a list and we go over them with Conan and then we start just picking words out or saying, could we, is this a little more clear? And I'd never, um, for my own act had that sort of, uh, surgical, like a team of people, you know, working on one, one single joke. So that I think kind of changed how I, uh, approached, uh, writing for myself a little bit. I think before that, I just knew I was supposed to end on a laugh, but I didn't, I ne- I was never like a, the person that liked to read joke books and all that kind of, uh, you know, it's quote, uh, dissecting the frog, uh, mm. quote, um, kind of thing. Cause it just, it, it, uh, it felt like it r- ruined what, whatever was fun about comedy. Um, mm. but you can definitely break all jokes down into little formulas you know, which still makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? I, I always wonder if I'm, um, like, if I wasn't also a comic, this whole podcast would be kind of awful because I would be just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'd be just trying, let's destroy it. And given that I am a comic, I, I feel like I always assumed everyone had that kind of analytical, like when I hear a joke, I kind of go, oh, that's good. That breath is so good. You know, that pause is so good. That word choice is so good. So I suppose it's just that writ large. But on, um, like, just as an example, the bit about um, morphine, when you're talking about your dad having been given morphine and, you know, the rules, you know, the rules of morphine are most of it is for the patient and what's (laughs) left is for the bereaved. And, And then... And and the fact of like all of the different elements in it, it's so densely packed that by the time you end on like the punchline of that bit, which is I had no idea opiates were on an honor system. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, my God, like every every moment of it is like that is not just it's not just the funniest word. It's also the word which most serves the idea yeah, or, right. or expands the idea. 
It's yeah. not really a it's not really a question. I'm just a bit in awe. I'm like, oh, oh that's gosh, good. thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I I don't know how to respond uh, besides saying I'm really uh, obsessed about not repeating words too much, you know, without yeah. sounding like I went to a thesaurus to still tell talk about the same idea, just because I. I, I get I start to tune out if people repeat the same word like about the third time, and I, yes. I assume that other people do too. So, but um, yeah, and it's not just it's not just kind of tuning out as well because it's it's it like it kills it right. It's like that's the yeah. problem with comedy songs. If you hear a chorus a second time, you're like, come on, you know, yeah. we know, we, we, come I know, on, I know, <laughs> we know the joke. You can so, break that rule if you want to. You don't have to yeah. repeat everything in the chorus. But so in, in terms of making that show, was that distinct? And I, I don't know in terms of like how many specials you've made, like how, where was that show in your, uh, in your experience of writing hour long shows? Um, that was a unique one. After, uh, while my dad was dying, I had a little chunk of material about him having cancer. And then after he died, um, I, I just kept trying to, do that same chunk, you know, plus a few new jokes in my regular act. And it would always like the, the just a, a stillness would gather over the crowd <laughs> as they, <laughs> because I, I, I felt like my voice was quivering and I wasn't good at talking about it. And, you know, I'd been talking about dating and then my dad died and then I was going to try to segue into my son or whatever, you know, and it and it didn't have a natural nightclub feel, that chunk of material. Um, and I, I understand why. Uh, so I decided, well, let me just do a special where it's just just these kind of jokes and I'll name it that. So no one's surprised when they walk in and let's see, let's see what happens. Um uh, I, and then I just started taking it on the road. I, um, I would do like these little black box theaters that would let me, um, uh, and I would just, uh, I try to built it up as much as I, I could on the weekends and I lost a lot of money. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the first special I had done intentionally. Um, I, you know, it's weird. I was, since I was raised as a comic, like in the early nineties, basically, you know, the, the fact that the idea that you do an album or a special was like you had to be asked, you know, by powerful people and they had to think you were funny. So the idea that I would do it myself was I didn't I couldn't get past the idea of, oh, I must not be good enough or they would they whoever they are would have asked me by now. Yeah. So I, I guess yeah, I have to keep yeah. getting better. Um, and then at some point I'm like, oh, they're never going to ask me. <laughs> I don't know why but they have moved. They drove by me very quickly and I keep thinking they're going to, they're going to circle back and pick me up and they're not, they're like out of the country. So <laughs> the industry. Uh, yeah. So um, then I just decided, fuck it, I'll try it by myself. And I was just going to have it be a really short special, but then I just kept adding stuff to it. So I had it like, I think by the end I had about 48 minutes, maybe total. And I mean, I had a, a bunch of other stuff too, but I just, I mean, stuff that didn't work that well that obviously I got rid of, but, um, uh, I, I just thought, well, I'll just try to hit this topic with every possible type of joke, including a knock, knock joke, just like, just yes, like everything, just like, yeah, go ahead. It's so, well, it's such a clean beginning to the show, the knock, knock joke kind of format. And it, inescapably <laughs> to my mind, it reminds me of like an Edinburgh fringe hour because it's oh, really? thematic which is yeah. not something that's so common 
um, in the States, I know. Um, and I don't have you. I don't think you've performed in Europe before, have you? I have a little bit. I did Edinburgh in two thousand four. Oh, okay. I shared. I shared a, a month with Doug Stanhope and James, James Inman at the Velvet. Um, I think it was called the Velvet Underground, or no, no maybe not. Uh, some the Gilded Balloon. Velvet Velvet Lounge. Uh, Velvet Lounge. Not sure. Not sure. Okay. Um, that's okay. Um, but what, what struck me is that it's because there is, you will, you may be aware there is a cliche of a dead dad show in Edinburgh. Like oh, really? Whereby, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yours is totally distinct from that. Yeah. Because the moment, the kind of the moment in, in that special where you, you kind of like the most kind of emotionally kind of, uh, gripping moment is when you talk about, for me, is when you talk about kind of shouting, I want my dad over and over again. Yeah. You know, I want my dad back. And that kind of, that's like an emotional climax. Yeah. But it's like in the standard Edinburgh show would be that moment stretched out over 60 minutes. But <laughs> what you've done is what it says on the tin, 45 jokes, like big, big, punchy, clubby jokes. And I suppose I'm just kind of interested in, I don't know quite, again, I don't know quite what the question is, but the um the fact that that show is so different to a kind of a fringe style show it's kind of similar in in direction but it's it's like big punchy bits did you did you want did any of the stuff that you cut go further into the kind of your personal emotional reaction to it um i tried i i did not want any sort of emotion in it, really, except ah, for okay. anything it perhaps in the setup, but I would I wanted a punchline to follow immediately. So I did not want to go down the one person show. I think in the States it's more like the bulimia show or something. Where <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, but it's the same I guess it's the same thing. I I, I didn't want any of that. I wanted Ideally, because I was also working this stuff out at comedy clubs um, when I I wanted all of this stuff to work in a comedy club when people are being served, given the check or they're being served drinks. I just wanted the jokes to work just as much as any other any other joke. So to me, it it was almost like, I don't know, just making them uh, as bulletproof and jokey as possible. And that, and also my presentation, like not getting to a certain chunk of material and going, okay, this is, these jokes really mean something to me. People. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, they, sort you of know, clunky gear change. Into, yes. Oh, yes. Now, now you need to listen differently. Yeah. I think, um, the hardest thing was getting, was getting a sense of ease with talking about that stuff. So it didn't, didn't seem like a tone change, just like, Oh, okay, now we're talking about this. Not, oh my gosh, um, oh no, the comedian's, uh, you know, distressed. <laughs> yeah. You know, that really changes how the audience uh, perceives things. And it, it just took a while for me to be able to just sort of tell those jokes with the same sort of disdain as I would just tell any other joke, you know? Disdain, I think, disdain <laughs> in, a, in a show about your dead father. I really thought disdain for him. But that is an interesting tone. Talk to me about disdain. Is that like, um, is that a, a sort of a, a, a usual groove of yours on stage? Um, I guess it's just more if you if you don't like this joke, I don't care. I mean, I do care. And it, and, if, and if the reason someone doesn't like a joke is because it's not funny, of course I care. But if most people like it and it's, you know, it's a consistently a, a good laugh getting joke, then then I just... It's weird. I mean, I guess the personal disdain I would have for it is it's like, oh, it's done and I'm doing it again. So I maybe disdain for myself 
for <laughs> for yeah, being a yes. hack. But uh, <laughs> there's but like it, just I, a moment with jokes where for five, maybe like for five weeks, they're new, but they're not so new that they're not good. Like they're new and they're good and they're gaining gaining steam and momentum, and you're you're on to something. And that those those weeks are pretty exciting. And then you find it, and then then it's like, oh, okay. Yes. Does that does that always as that seeing so someone who's been going since eighty seven? Does that go? Does that change that quality? Because I completely recognise that of like, oh, I'm chasing the thing, and it's the thrill of the chase is enlivening the bit, and then you find the thing, and you go, well, I found it now. No, does so that, far like, it doesn't change. So far, it's like, oh, that bit. All right, it's done. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe coming out of this pandemic, every chunk will feel new again. You know, because. Uh, we have just been doing these things in front of our computers or maybe outdoor shows, uh, but they're very limited. So I don't know, maybe, maybe doing, you know, material that you like, I feel finished uh, in two years <laughs> at any comedy club that's still open. will will feel different. I'm sure it will, but um, yeah. Just to, just to stay with disdain for a moment. It occurs to me that I, I the the last show I was doing, the show that I should have been doing at the festival this year, the Edinburgh Festival, um, when I did a work in progress of that show the previous year, an opening line, part of the opening I used was I would walk on and throw my phone on a stool and I'd say, I've started throwing my phone on a stool at the beginning of a show because I've been watching lots of American comics and I feel it shows just the right amount of disdain for an audience. <laughs> and it just, it's just funny. To, uh, just, I'm just interested in... In whether you think, I suppose the reason that joke exists is because there is something about kind of, there is a difference with, obviously all comics are different, but we can Mm -hmm. say broadly between US and UK comics, the fact of like the quite louche, I'm coming on, I'm throwing my phone down, that kind of just, I I suppose the question is whether for you, you said there about it's, um, it's, it's a way, is it a means of distancing yourself from the jokes or a, a means of kind of artificially separating yourself from them is it a means of protecting yourself in some way like that you're kind of that if the joke doesn't work you're cool doesn't matter is there um, is there that tone to it and not specifically for you but for yeah. when you see comics affect that 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 feeling i don't know i think it probably is different for every comic i i mean um i i just want to be able to handle any situation you know and i know there's if it's a live audience there's there's some there's some alcoholic there's there's somebody who wants to say something and is trying to muster up the courage so i i guess i just want to be aware of all that and be able to tell the jokes without having to worry about the jokes like i what i ha- actually have to worry about is managing this crowd you know mm. uh, uh i don't know that that answers your question though i uh I, I think it's more just a, a feeling of what's exciting is new material. And so your brain is kind of focused on, I got to remember to do this thing after this joke. And, and so you, you almost need these other finished jokes that you work so hard on just to um, put the audience in the right mood to accept new jokes. You know, you got to get them to go, A, relax because you're funny. Relax because they like you. So you have to like you have these little chunks that have to accomplish all that, right? And then once they do, and the audience is sort of uh, under your control, then maybe you know you can try the new stuff out and see where it lands. And has your has your status in relationship to your audience changed over the course of your career? Um, some of them know who I am. 
Oh, no, sorry. I I mean, I stumble in and have no idea. No, no, no. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't mean your status as in kind of like in an industry way. I mean, in terms of the, the, your relationship with a crowd, you know, you, you, some comics will come in and like boss the crowd. Like I'm in charge of this and other comics will kind of come and go, Oh, you know, my life's terrible. I'm, I'm worse than you. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, like status I, I, in, in those terms. I, I would guess, um, and I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I'm a mother, but it's definitely more, I'm less interested in being liked by the audience. I feel like if I, the jokes are good, they'll like me because they're there for jokes. Um, and, uh, so maybe that's a freedom I didn't have when I was younger and I was, you know, just trying to get rebooked. I hope they leave good comments on my comment cards because that's how the booker books his room. And, and, uh, and maybe now just, uh, uh, I, I have a different status in the industry a little bit or, or whatever that I, I don't have to worry about that much as much as yeah. I used to, I guess. You can be following Laurie Kilmartin on Twitter as well you should at AnyLaurie16. That's the the numbers one six, any, A-N-Y, Laurie, 16. And I highly recommend it indeed. Her website is kilmartin.com and she is very, very funny. I really recommend if you have access to the internet and let's assume you do. Certainly her album 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad is on Spotify as we speak. Um, But you can probably also purchase a copy uh, from her website as you can Uh, a copy of her book. The links are in the show notes for this episode. So we'll get right back to it. A reminder, there are no uh, extras with this episode, uh, but you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to support the show as well as receiving access to a private podcast, not via Patreon. If you are on Patreon, you can find the Patreon page for The Comedian's Comedian um, exactly where you'd expect to find it. Um, But the Patreon that I use is pretty much a cut and shut. When you join, it just gives you access to the the private podcast that you would otherwise get if you join via my preferred method which is at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders i just leave it up there because if you already have a patreon account then it's one less hurdle so thank you to all the people who are uh, currently uh, supporting me via patreon the old old school paypal system and and the new system has been up for so long now that if you're still paying via a, a paypal subscription you are old school and i now grant you the ability to swan around wearing the renaissance hat of your choice so thank you very much to everyone who's been supporting uh, the podcast and also thank you to those of you who've been in touch as a result of my facebook posts on my own page and in the facebook concom group um, as I attempted to soft launch my resilience presentations, I'm thrilled to tell you that those are flying off the virtual shelves. So if you would like me to come and talk to your business remotely, I say come, but remotely, um, I've been speaking to Denmark and the UK and uh, Dallas, Texas and Auckland, New Zealand uh, in the last week or so. Um, they are proving Timely, I suppose. The resilience one is is the main one. I've also uh, written one on authenticity and what comedy can teach you about authenticity. And also, if you are a a software developer or a problem solver of any sort, then I have one on what comedy and comedians, what we do in terms of creativity, which has a, a lot to offer anyone who solves problems for a living, anyone who takes two things and smashes them together to create a third thing. But the resilience one is the main one, and that is... Uh, proving very, I say timely, I mean, uh, I, I say that with all due respect, but um, 
I think certainly in times of pandemic, everybody wants to know about how they can be more resilient, particularly for those of us who are suddenly or have been for a while who are fatigued by remote working and the challenges that presents the pretty unique uh, challenges, the sense of always being contactable, the inability to decompress from work mode, and indeed the fact that all of your interactions now are kind of context-driven and you never get to bump into anyone in the lobby or the cafe where you work. You're just sort of meeting them online and having meetings about things and not any real social time. On which subject, handily enough, um, the Infinite Sofa, as many of you will know, is the, the fabulous uh, online interactive chat show that I've been doing for the last six months, is now available in a corporate format as well. So get in touch at info at comedianscomedian.com and I will give you some more information on that, uh, how me and producer Callum will turn up and invite 12 of your members of staff or management, if they're feeling brave, into uh, an online room, into a virtual environment, and we will bring with us some celebrity comedian guests and basically do the show for your business. We've done a couple of them and they have been absolutely brilliant. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, get in touch. Info at comedianscomedian.com. Here endeth the blurb. And let's get back to Laurie Kilmartin. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. It's it struck me, given how, like, I find you a very commanding presence, and I think, obviously, it's experience, and as you say, maybe motherhood plays a part as well. But um, I noticed in your Conan set, I think your most recent Conan set, I was watching on YouTube, um, you, you have a very un, a, a, a choice of opening line which really surprised me. People went crazy when you came on, and then you said, get ready to be disappointed. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's an odd kind of well, an odd I, first thing to say it's not my normal opening but <laughs> because uh they gave me a standing ovation when i walked out which was very I weird see, that's not visible on the thing okay yeah. i understand um that show was uh it was an all-female show the guests and the first guest was patty um jenkins the director of wonder woman i think her last name was okay. jenkins right 
And people were Wonder Wonder Woman was like just about to open, and people were like in a in a frenzy. And the second okay. guest was Riley Keough's Elvis's granddaughter, Elvis Presley's granddaughter. I don't know. The audience was like, I'm like, I have no idea why you're standing because I know uh, you I don't see, know who I, I am, but I think they okay. were just delighted by the show or something. I'm not gotcha, really sure. Gotcha. That does make sense. <laughs> I, I, can see, I can see that. And that, and just talking about that, um, that set with the the kind of the closing bit, the no English Domingo bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the premise being that uh, you encourage your half Mexican son to only speak Spanish on Sundays. You have no no English Domingo. Um, I I suppose to me that bit is just one of those things I think of as like, oh, you could close on that bit for the rest of your life. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just. By the time and the line that I've made a note of, so my son goes underwater. The premise being that you've pushed him in and you're in, in a pool, until he's, right? And he until has he to asks say, for help. save Sorry, himself yeah. in Spanish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the line, my son goes underwater to think. Just, <laughs> I, I, that was like I was slapping the the table. Um, when you like, in, in terms of the creation of that bit, is it all just built in clubs? Are you writing? What is your writing? process look like for a, for a bit like that is it kind of spoken and then trimmed improvised and then Im- improved or sat yeah. and written it's not sat and written it's it's that it's like on the way to the club uh it's uh on a train to the set or it's in the car on the way to a set and uh it's you know if the show's running late and i'm supposed to be on next but they're 10 minutes behind it's me with my notebook just in the back of the room going over stuff so that's kind of i wish i was like you know, Seinfeld or I think Daniel Sloss is very disciplined like that, just sitting at a table and writing jokes. But I and I would probably be further along if I were. But um, that's that's not my that's not my thing. And it's weird. I was looking through some old notebooks just to find premises. And I found early iterations of that bit. I was like, wow, <laughs> it was, you know, it wasn't that good at first. It was, you know, it, it wasn't that good. It was it just took a while to. It's interesting, those, it's, it's almost like, I always think to myself, those moments like just before you're about to go up, the creativity there, because there is yeah. a very real pressure. Like we've all yeah. done that thing of like um, going on the way to a gig thinking, I'm going to do that new bit and that new bit. And then you get there, you see the actual humans and you go, oh, I'm going to rethink some of those decisions. <laughs> you know? but yeah. It's almost like just finding exactly the right time in which to do the important work. Yeah. Like if, we, if you could have the, the feeling of those 10 minutes pre-show for two hours at home. Oh, I couldn't We don't be legendary, oh right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. There, it's just this weird, um, getting the, getting that, that chunk in particular to the point where it was so silly that people let go of the fact that my, uh, my son is drowning in the joke, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, that took a while to figure out just to get to the that point where it's, it, it's obviously that I'm joking you know yeah yeah i i did wonder given your your credentials as a writer that you are i wondered whether you were more a sort of sit down and write it out person like is there presumably in a writer's room and i know you're you're actually going to be in the you've got a writer's meeting in 35 minutes because where you are it's 9 a.m or something um so when you're going into that environment presumably you're you're pitching stuff that you've written or is it is it more similar to the 10 minutes before you go up um, in terms of how you access that. Creative. Well, it's weird. I mean, 
pre-pandemic, I was just a monologue writer. So um, we just wrote, you know, we, we would just write in our own offices by ourselves and then meet and read the jokes out loud and work on them all together. Um, so it, it, it I, I remember when I first got hired at Conan, because I hadn't written jokes in that sort of at that intensity. I was like, how am I going to do this? This is crazy. Uh, it, this is how I do things. And, uh, but you figure it out. And also because you're not writing for somebody else. I mean, you are writing for somebody else and not yourself. You're not that emotionally attached to it. And, you know, after a while, uh, you get, you get your hosts or whoever you're writing for, you get their voice in, in your head and that, and you're like, okay, so when I sit and I open up word, <laughs> uh, I, I'm writing for, for this person and, uh, and, and also the topics, it's all current events. It's nothing I'm interested in talking about on stage. So it, it, um, it never, it, it got to a point where it was pretty, um, uh, not easy to do, but it, I could, I wasn't like, Oh God, I, I'll never, I'll never be able to turn in 25 jokes in two hours, you know? Now I can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not good. There's maybe two good ones in the 25, (laughs) but I can technically fill out the paperwork. That's that's it. I saw someone do this once. I've not really been in that kind of writer situation, but I was I was making a pilot for a show, and uh, a Welsh comic called Lloyd Langford was kind of brought in to punch up the oh, yeah. script, add a load of jokes, and it was fascinating to sit in the same office as him and just see him literally like fill in twenty five jokes. That that um that experience of going okay, these have to be twenty five jokes. They don't have to be twenty five good jokes, or they. I mean, yeah, ideally. Good. But you know, realistically, it's not like you're just going, well, I've done two good ones. I'll just fill in whatever, you know, random words for the yeah. audience. But, but that, that experience of like, I don't know what, so when you're, you're like, okay, we've got this subject. So just machine gun this subject, like get into that subject and, and tear it apart and come up with every angle you can. Presumably the, the kind of the, the, the spark that's making you do your best besides the desire to retain your job mm-hmm. and be excellent and well thought of <laughs> is the fact that you then need to pitch them to the other writers. No, uh, we just, you know, again, for, for uh, you, I think that experience is more the sketch side of, of Conan, not the monologue side. It's pretty solo. Like you just, you write them, you turn them in, uh, you email them to the writer's assistant. She compiles a document of jokes and then we would go sit with Conan and you would read them and say, I like this one, this one, this one, this one. Uh, I don't like this one, but I like this premise. So try, try again there. And then we go off and okay. do that again. So it was less, much less collaborative, except when uh, we were prepping for the show, like in the last hour before the show, then of the, you know, if he picked eight or 10 jokes, now we, now we're all, there's like six people looking at them going, uh, you know, it, doing the final edits and figuring out what, you know, the joke order and all that kind of stuff. So that's when it gets collaborative. And, and, and is there, in, the, in that collaborative thing, because that's such a special, that's such an unusual flex of one's comedy muscles yeah. to be collectively working on short jokes I know. with moments to go. Like, that's so exciting. It is, right? but yeah. Do you, do you find ever like I know if I if I attempt to punch up my own material, say I'll go, hey, this works, but I feel it could be better. There's always a risk that I'll kind of change a word, and by doing so, I've completely fucked the joke because, like, you yeah. know, I, I've just turned it two degrees further than a realistic limit of an audience's comprehension. Like this thing works, but to make it better, I've changed it to this thing, and now it's gone. Yeah. So is there that tension well, under? There's the always. Like the way we do it is no one knows who wrote the joke, right? 
Although now, I mean, this was when we had five writers writing jokes. No one, it's not like our initials were after each joke. So, sure, sure, so then sure. you could just start working on jokes without worrying about, am I, you know, offending this person because I think I can come up with a better version of it. It, you know, it, that's sort of, it's all in on everyone's joke. It's like, you know, just sharks, just feeding, trying to, well, what about this? What about this instead? And, and sometimes the joke is perfect as is. And, and then we, we would get called out for doing, you know, unnecessary revisions and, you know, uh, okay, I and think the, sort of yeah, and yeah. then sometimes just like a, you know, you wrote a B plus version and someone can see, Oh, if we just, switch this a little bit, we're right, right exactly where we want to be. Um, so that's, that's always, you know, you're always grateful for that, but it's always hard to, you know, like, uh, well, first of all, sometimes your best jokes don't get picked, you know? I mean, there's, there's days where I was like, I can't believe I'm, I'm left with this joke. This should be, this should be on television. I have to tweet this. Come on now. Um, but, uh, whatever. Uh, and then, and then, you know, when, when your joke is being poured over by other comedy writers, it's kind of hard to jump in cause you feel protective over it. You know, I'm like, Oh, I just hope it stays. Yes. In. <laughs> yeah. What, what are the other, what are the other kind of emotional or, or sort of, um, uh, the lessons that you have had to learn in order to survive in that environment, like in terms of like being able to maintain distance from your joke or not be too precious about it. Are there other things that you have, are there, are there things that you've sort of struggled with that are less to do with the technicalities of joke writing and more to do with how you treat yourself? Um, yeah. Sometimes you will have a, you'll have a bad streak. You're just not clicking yeah. and it sucks. And, um, you know, sometimes it'll last a couple days. It's not a good feeling, but it happens to everybody. And then there's other days where it's so effortless and you wrote the entire monologue, you know, and you're like, oh, you're like, I got seven of eight jokes on this monologue. So I know somebody's here having is having a nervous breakdown right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and you just right. remember that when it's you, somebody else, you know, it's, it just, it's like a, it's like a cloud that, that it follows the writers and that settles on a different one each day, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. And that is, that's a proper voice of experience thing <laughs> to be able to like, can you, and can you remind yourself of that when you're, when you are suffering the, the crummy streak? Yeah. Like, can you go, Hey, come on, this is part of it. It's yeah. Be fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, and now, cause there's just two of us, uh, it, you know, I'm commiserating with the person who's obviously have having a great streak. So, <laughs> but that, that's yeah, nice. Yeah, person. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, all right. Well, you kicked my ass today. Oh, well. And, and when stuff doesn't get used, can it be repurposed into stand up, or is it so different from your style that, I, it, it, that you I just can't do anything with it? Throw it into a can. I can't use it. Yeah. It's very, very rare. I, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump. Oh, and I don't want to talk yeah, about sure. reality show stars. It's completely not my thing. Does that mean that you have to do research into shows that you're not interested in in order to be able to write jokes? Not about? really, because um, we don't, we do stuff that pre, we have to, <laughs> sounds really dismissive, but we have to go, does our audience <laughs> know who this is? Like, I can't tell you how many times I've watched The Daily Show, you know, uh, and just been like envious that they can assume their audience knows who uh, certain, like not the top level politicians, you know, like the second sure, sure, tier, sure. third tier. And uh, and we're, 
you know, sometimes we're like, do they know Trump is their president? Yeah, I think they do at this point. <laughs> because it's not really a political show. So we don't get like these people that are like all in and, and uh, you know, uh, sure. so we're if if we think our audience knows about it, then we then we've heard about it, too. You know, OK. And you mentioned, do I have to tweet this? Is that like a kind of a, that's like the underground railroad. So you can just <laughs> yes, get your, sure. <laughs> that's, you can get, we'll get out some. Out yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, used to, used so to tweet, I used to tweet jokes and just kind of announce, hey, I'm tweeting jokes. Like it was, you know, a big deal. Like who cares? Who, everyone tweets jokes now. So who fucking cares? But maybe that was earlier in Twitter. But um, I feel like a, uh, since using Twitter to talk about my dad and, uh, and, and also the, uh, 2016 election, I feel like my Twitter joke voice is also very different from my stage voice. Like, I, like, yeah. I don't know if you felt like this, but I kind of developed a third, uh, a third voice besides listen, you know, having Conan's in my head on my, whatever I do on stage. And that's like social media voice, which I wasn't expecting yes. to do. Yes, totally. And and when you said, um, I, I wanted to ask you about that. When you said just now that you're, um, that you tweeted jokes and not everyone was doing that. Like now, Twitter is just it's jokes, yeah. right? Or well, certainly it's my awful. Twitter. I mean, everyone obviously algorithmically. Yeah. Is it awful? Go on. Yes. Well, it's awful <laughs> because um, uh, every every you know if a, if a story breaks at ten a.m. that day. Um, every joke's been done by 11.15, you know? And, like, it's like, okay, well, if we want to talk about this at 11 p.m. at night, is there is there a way that's just a teeny bit different that maybe hasn't been done 400 times on Twitter and is in our, you know, our, our host's wheelhouse and in his voice? Like, it, that is super annoying. And I, I envy, you know, like, pre-Twitter late-night writers because they didn't have any competition except for – Maybe yeah. the one or two other late night shows. Now there's like a million late night shows and there's there's a million people just riffing on Twitter all day long. It's 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 awful. Like I, I there's a I, I have a, a a list of journalists, like a a Twitter list, and that's that's almost okay. only what I look at during the day because I don't want some comics tweet coming into my head. You know, that is such a great solution. I was I have always assumed without ever asking that that must be an absolute nightmare. Yes. So the fact of a Twitter list of journalists, so it enables you to just look at. The yes, news yes, yes. Without. Yeah, yeah. OK. Oh, that is smart. OK. And who's who's other in terms of the different. I'm fascinated by the difference. There's the there's the your own stand up voice and the Conan voice and the your own Twitter voice. What are the differences between them? Well, like the, your stand up and Twitter. I'm very oh. political on Twitter. You know, um, and I, uh, you know, a lot of it isn't jokes. Uh, and then I don't know, like, I'll, I'll just, I will like tweet little jokes about my mom when she was alive and also my son <clears throat> parenting and stuff like that. And then um, I have this stupid little series that I started where I just tweet what Trump did, but as if President Hillary yeah, as Clinton if it were did President it. Clinton. Oh, mate, the first one of those I saw when I had no context, <laughs> I was like, what's what's going on? And I had to very hastily kind of retroactively yeah. work out the game, which is one part of what made it so exciting. I think it's really Thanks. funny. Thanks. That's, that's like the only, I, I feel like that's a slightly um, 
more interesting way of commenting on what he's doing. Otherwise, my only option yeah. is what the fuck? Fuck this piece of shit. Like I can't I can't sure. keep shouting like that on Twitter. Uh no one wants to see that. So I that's the that's the way I can kind of slightly do some kind of it's not even a joke. It's just more of a different way of looking at it, I guess. What's what's the relationship between your stand up as self expression? as in saying things that you've got to get out. Do you know what I mean? There's like some, some comics are kind of like, I like telling jokes and making people happy. And at the other end of the scale, there's, I've got a, there's this thing in me and I have to get it out. Otherwise I can't live. And, and I, so I, I suppose I get a sense from listening to your stand up about the relationship between those, those two things, the, the self and how, you know, the jokes and how much is expressive. And I guess I'm, this is a long winded question, but on Twitter, is it a, is it similar? So, like, how much of it is jokes to make people laugh, and how much of it is getting it out in stand up and in Twitter? Oh. What's the relationship between mm. those? I don't I don't believe comics who say they like to make people happy. I think comics <laughs> like to make people miserable, and they're trying to hide it by getting a laugh instead. You know. Um, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love the idea, but I want to know why. Prove it. What do you well, mean? I mean, what you want to do is control an audience, and you you that's what stand up is to me. It's it's um, you you want to make these people love you or at least like you, and this is the way to do it through jokes. And then there's a separate party that can actually become really good at writing jokes and is interested in the structure of it and all that. But I think the primal desire for, um, and I think it's different for male comics than it is for female comics, but it's to, it's to control the, a, a, a large group, the opinion of a large group of people. <laughs> so, and that's not about making anyone happy. That's about, that's about dominating dominating people and controlling their thoughts it's uh, and that's and that's distinct what's the distinction for female comics um you know and i can't prove this but my my feeling is that male comics their underlying uh motivation to get up on stage is to get laid and female comics it's to get heard yeah so i think that's why we have very different road experiences and stuff like that but um yeah so Anyway, I, I don't yeah, have like a, a, I don't have, I don't, I, I want to kill, but I, I don't care if the audience is happy. <laughs> it's, yes. it's very selfish. Got it. Got it. Very, all of this is very well put. <laughs> I know that you're, I'm not, I don't mean to sound surprised that it's well put by any means, but I'm like, I, I immediately, I'm like, mm, let's test that theory. You know, men want to dominate and women want to be heard without kind of digging too deeply into it. I'm like, oh, that completely checks yeah. out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, obviously, as a broad generalization. Yeah, of yeah. course. So, so, and so that's with stand-up. Mm-hmm. So then in terms of on Twitter, do you see a similar, is there something similar reflected in male and female comics use of Twitter? Um, yeah, uh, that's different, I guess, you know. Uh, I guess it's very different. Um you're not it's it's almost like how performing stand-up is now where you, it, it doesn't it's not a real it's you get a, a heart you know if somebody likes it and if someone thinks you're smart they retweet it right you get that ah oh, look at these people think i'm smart or i'm stupid <laughs> they're, quote tweeting, they're quote tweeting and telling me i'm an idiot god, god damn it 
I'm just um, I'm just analysing my own recent retweets to find out. Yeah, that's I wanted people to think I was clever. Yeah, I'm very Yeah. Well, that's not bad. It's also going. Hey, look at this! Look at this genius. I I, I was at least smart enough to point, to realize this is a great point <laughs> yes. that you might enjoy as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Got it. So uh, so it it doesn't have to be like nefarious intentions all the time. But um, uh, gosh, I I I, I guess I I. I, maybe because maybe Twitter's things I wouldn't talk about on stage. It's just like a, uh, it's a, it's a side, it's a side gig, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah I maybe that's... not, I, maybe I don't have a good answer for you. No, I think that's interesting though, because I think often what we say on stage is the things we wouldn't say in normal life. And then there's right. always like, they, they, you could sort of follow that logic and go, oh, well then, so why aren't you saying that stuff on stage? Like, what is it that, that makes it distinct from, Oh well, I wouldn't say that on stage. Well, it's simply because it's kind of because, given that it is jokes, still a lot of it, is, you know, there's political yeah, stuff, I mean, but there is, but it's funny. I, uh, well, it wouldn't get a laugh. Stuff that you know, jokes that or work on paper or work on a screen, they they have a different rhythm, and they, you know, I can't, I can't of the little Hillary Clinton jokes I do. I don't think a single one would get a laugh on a on a nightclub stage. I would never. Yeah. I would never, yeah. I've never tolerate that silence. I wouldn't even try it. <laughs> I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking of Eddie Pepitone shouting, "These are my tweets!" As if he's going to read out his tweets. Yes. Oh, we all thought, wish we thought of that. <laughs> just in terms of, um, we'll get back to Twitter in a second. But um, I'm interested in the other changes that you have seen. When you said, like, what comedy is now? You're trying to get a little heart or a retweet. Like one of my oh. bugbears is is having seen comedy as I understand it during my short, relatively short of 15 years in comedy, um, seen it transformed. And I, I say that whilst recognizing the kind of the, the absurdity of it, because yeah. I do in my core believe that comedy is for everyone. Yeah. But I, I suppose the, the way in which now there are social media comics almost, you know, who are yeah. perfectly good comics and right. maybe in a, in a, wherever some, you know, the chuckle hut somewhere, pound for pound, they're as good as a comic that isn't a social media comic, except they have an enormous amount of influence and platform and all the rest of it because they've cracked how to be a social media comic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, in, in my heart of hearts, I love the Chuckle Hut comics. And, and if I go down, the, if I die on that road, that's fine. I, um... <laughs> you would rather die on stage than whilst tweeting. That's yes. I think that's a good way of separating. Yes. Yes, I'd rather die on stage at a chuckle hut than die in Instagram stories. You know, <laughs> that's how I want to go. Um, yeah, I, uh, you know, uh, the whole, the whole, the, the whole, I don't know, 10 years that it takes you to be comfortable on stage. I guess you can skip that if, <laughs> you know, right now. And, and if you're going to be, you know, more of a social media comic, um, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's too bad because that whole journey of, at least for me, you know, driving all over the place, doing these one nighters, doing, going on the road, I would, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The experiences I had and that, um, just the the getting better very slowly with the sheer repetition of being on stage almost every single night and, um, how that changes your personality. Once you know, you can do it. Like, you know, I spent like the first five years just going, you know, just like 
being so worried about being on stage, I could barely think of jokes. And now, now, you know, I, uh, that's, that, that went away a long time ago. And it, and it was so nice to just think about comedy, like think about the new stuff I wanted to try and not, um, are they going to see that I'm scared? You know, it's, it's getting whatever that inner Bernie Mac, I ain't scared of you motherfucker. (laughs) It takes a while to get that in your, in your soul, you know? So, um, uh, and I, and I, I think if you're only doing stuff on social media, you, you won't have that opportunity. And when you will be performing live at some point, everyone will be again, you know, you probably, you won't have as much to draw from and you may not be as compelling, but you know what? Maybe that audience doesn't care, you know, like, again, like I, maybe I was just raised with the audience that, you know, was basically told you can yell at, you can yell at her if you don't like her. <laughs> and, I, and I do feel like there's maybe a, a newer sort of um, type of standup where the audience is very respectful. And, mm-hmm. you know, at a, in a, at a, it, I see it more at alternative venues, you know, where they, they come on purpose to see comedy and they're really into comedy and they're great. Um, but I also just like, I, I enjoyed the ability to, to walk up, you know, I was thinking of this one show in Butte, Montana, I did like in the early nineties. And I was so afraid because they were all miners. They were like copper miners or something, or, or they were copper miners sons. And, you know, yeah. like, so even worse, you know, cause they weren't doing what their daddy was doing. Cause that business was dead or whatever, but, uh, and going, I have nothing these are white people and I'm white and I have nothing in common with them. That was like, that was very like, wow, how do I, cause I, I look like them, but I know that I'm not like them. And how am I going to, you know, how am I going to do this? I, I wasn't articulating it like that, but I, I remember, uh, and then doing it and going, Oh my God, I, you know, I fooled them or something. I don't know what happened. How did you, how did you do, do you, do you remember how you dealt with that? Because I have certainly experienced, as I'm sure we all have versions yeah. of that thing. Like I have nothing in common with this audience yeah. for whatever reason. How do you, because I mean, I suppose I, what one inevitably finds is, oh, you do. You've got humanity in common with yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. And really it's right. a hurdle that but you know, kind of put in. But you know, like you ever work like this town where you're like, if I lived here, I would not be at this Ramada Inn tonight seeing comedy. I would be working to get the fuck out of this town. Right. <laughs> so, so I have to hide my contempt for these people's life choices while I, while I perform for them, because I don't respect the fact that they live here. Um, now this is like pre before I had a kid and I realized people make compromises. Sure. <laughs> and I was like this hard ass at the time. But um, uh, yeah, I think I lost the thread of the. Oh, but it beautifully articulated. Before we, I'm, I'm aware we don't have much time and I, I don't want to hurry, but um, obviously we can't move on from the stuff on Twitter uh, uh, without talking about the, the experience of you live tweeting the, the loss of your mother. Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you. And it was, it was genuinely, they were beautiful and funny and heartrending. And how was that to be doing? Did you like, I don't even know what the question is, but honestly, how was it? Could you? You know, okay. So what's weird is I've done it before. (laughs) Yeah. I did it when my dad was dying of cancer. And, and when I, at that point, I just, what he was in hospice at the house 
Uh, and I wasn't going to leave the house to do a set. I was just used to going up on stage every night to start tweeting, you know, jokes that I probably would have tried on stage that night. So that, that took on its own life at that time. And that is special and whatever. And then, um, my mom was living with me and, uh, she was hospitalized because she, you know, she's 82 and in terrible health and had some problem. And then they were, they sent her to a nursing home for rehab for like a week. And that's where she caught COVID. So uh, I, I guess I, I didn't think, oh, God, here we go again. <laughs> you know, so but you, you did think that or you didn't think that? I didn't because I, 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 I was like, well, she's not going to die. You know, I don't know why I didn't think that because <laughs> she was in terrible health. <laughs> Excuse me. But um, uh, I kind of just you know, tweet a lot anyway about stuff that's mm-hmm. happening in my personal life that doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to turn into a chunk on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was June and it was, uh, it was an early, early COVID experience for a lot of people, you know, and um, <clears throat> then as it started to unfold and become more surreal of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I'm just watching it on the iPad you know, at yeah. my kitchen, at my kitchen table, <laughs> watching my mom breathe and be moved every once in a while by people. And then, um, the, the effort that it took my sister and I to get to go visit her, that, that was something I took to Twitter and she, she's a doctor. So she got some, she's a psychiatrist. She got a bunch of doctors to pressure the hospital to change their policy um, but it was like everything was happening at the last minute, you know, we're like, what, my mom could die and, and you guys are deciding whether you're going to change this policy. And and then they did on like Sunday night and on Monday we we drove out and we got to spend like an hour with her and she died on Thursday um, while we were watching. You know, she the thing the thing that was helpful for my dad as I as I watched my dad die in real time was, <clears throat> you know, somebody will take a breath. And then there's like this pause (laughs) and then they take another one. And once the pauses start, FYI, they're they're, there. You don't have much time left. So I was watching my mom on Thursday morning and then there's, they started to be these pauses. And so my sister and I just sort of planted ourselves right there. And Mm -hmm. I would count between breaths. And then obviously at one point she didn't take the next one. So we knew. Yeah. So tweeting that, um, I felt like I had a lot of people pulling for me, which was really cool. Um, and, uh, um, I also felt like it gave my mom's death some meaning, you know, because, uh, it, it, it's a pretty awful death to just, to like, they have no last words. They, she got knocked unconscious pretty quickly by, like grabbed her brain very quickly. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's no last words and there's no final goodbye like we had with our dad. So I don't know. I guess I guess the fact that um, it, people knew about her death that made me not happy, but made me feel like, all right, it's not completely in vain, I guess. And um, uh, at the time, it was like COVID was still sort of new. So there weren't a lot of people that, that were maybe on Twitter that were tweeting about COVID deaths. Or if they were, it was like very you know, one tweet and I can't talk about it and then they go offline and stuff like that. And so I was still trying to say, this is what's happening. This is what it's like. This is what it feels like to watch, watch it happen. 
over, you know, a device. <laughs> and that's the, the one of the, the last ones that just hit me so hard was when you said my sister and I are both heartbroken that mom's last words to us were complaints about the nursing home and not about our appearance. <laughs> and I just like it is just the most perfect, like you're you're kind of minting perfect jokes about something <laughs> that is so awful and so personal. Like, did you did you feel like you almost had like a kind of is there a part of your life that has an almost journalistic detachment yes. in order to be able to create the joke? It's a way to, I think writing a joke about an emotion is a way to stop yourself from like falling into the volcano, you know, where you're just going to be consumed by it. So um, I, yeah, I guess I am pretty good at noticing an emotion, well, at least when it's grief related <laughs> and going, whoa, what's that? Let me see if I can convert that to something. And it gives my brain something to do besides, you know, uh, being incredibly sad. Yeah. So I suppose even if it's not, like, can you imagine doing any of those bits? Have you done any of any of those? I mean, I don't even want to call it material. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. You, have you, you've talked about it live in the way that you were talking about your dad's cancer yeah. at the time. Yes, I do have a chunk about my mom now. Yeah, and then it and post death, it's taken a different um, different turn. Or or it's, since it's been a couple of months now and stuff, it's it's uh, yeah, it's going going in a different direction. But yeah, I definitely have a have a, a chunk about it for sure. Um. I don't have a follow-up question for that. I mean, it's such a, <laughs> like, God, you know, it, I mean, it's it, it's enormous, it's inspiring. And it also, I think it's for people who are comedy writers listening to this, just a reminder that, like, there's a thing we say in comedy, isn't there? It's, I don't think anyone's boiled it down to an aphorism yet about, like, to make sure that you have some distance emotionally before you can talk about the stuff. I suppose for someone of your joke writing skill, that distance reduces? I guess so. Or it's maybe just my life skill as a, or, or ha having just been on stage for so long that, yeah, I don't need that much time to turn tragedy into comedy, like a couple of seconds. <laughs> does that, does that, just as a person, do you feel that that, that that's a kind of, that's quite a useful piece of emotional armor to know that you have that ability? Yeah. I mean, part of me is like, well, I never want to use it again because the only person I have left is my son. So uh, I hope I never use this skill again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, but in a, in a broader sense, the ability to, to the knowledge that you can, it's it's almost like it's quite good therapy in a way. I don't mean quite a therapy. I mean, it's a yeah. good therapeutic practice, like the kind of the mental jujitsu, as they say, of someone doing cognitive behavioral therapy, attack a thing with logic <laughs> and can, you know, talk yourself out of it, what have you. But to know that you can, in other, you know, in other much less tragic circumstances, but just a bad thing happens, got it, wrap it up, joke, bang, done, move on. Yeah. Does it mean that, is, is it emblematic of quite robust mental health? Or does it lead to <laughs> robust mental health? Oh, I, I don't know. I would never associate myself with the phrase robust mental health. <laughs> uh, so I'm probably not qualified to respond. But I mean, if you're a comic, that's what you do. You know, I mean, it, it's a little like I think we're better at other people's tragedies. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's I hate to quote Louis C.K., but that joke about his about um, masturbating between tower one and tower two. <laughs> like it's, 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 uh, it's, it's sort of like that where when it's a, 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 just like a world tragedy, we're on it immediately. And that's a problem actually on Twitter because you forget like, Hey, you can make that 
you're going to make that tsunami joke for your friends and people who just survived the tsunami are also going to be able to see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think when you take your own personal tragedy, then at least you're, you're not risking anyone but yourself and you wrote it. So it's no big deal. Notwithstanding the recent loss of your mother, are you happy? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if, I, if, if the air wasn't chunky outside and... Um, uh, so, sorry, notwithstanding also the complete collapse of your civilization <laughs> and your country. And the West Coast, right. And the West Coast. Not, notwithstanding anything that's happened in the last year. What's your base level of mental health? Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in decent health and my kid, I have a great kid. And uh, so anything else is gravy on top of that. And I'm financially stable. So that's a miracle. The the, the, the financial stability. Yes. As a a (laughs) comedy person. Yeah. Yeah, As a comic, as a comedy writer, whatever. As a comedy person, like... Uh, I feel like just the fact that I'm, I can cover, I can pay my bills. I feel like that's a huge win and I, it's better than um, starting a trillion dollar company. You know, <laughs> like I'd rather be me than Jeff Bezos. That is a beautiful time at which to end it. And I know your meeting starts in two minutes. Laurie, thank okay. you so much. It's just a joy to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Stuart. It was great. Thanks. Thank you once again to Laurie for coming on to the show. What an inspiration. What a what an inspiring comic. What a, an inspiring writer and creator. And really, you must do yourself a favour and listen to 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. It is as close... I mean, do that instead of buying a course on how to do stand-up. I mean, not instead, as well. Let's say as well. But honestly, I meant every word of what I said to Laurie there. You can hear... You can you can see, and I, I this is I suppose if you are intermediate or above, you it's just an object lesson in how to take an idea, mine it for the funny bits, expand upon it, and form it beautifully. It is a really really good show. So thank you once again to Laurie. Uh, thank you to Rob Smarton for the music. Producer Nathan, I'm calling you Producer Nathan now. Uh, Nathan, who has produced and edited this show. Uh, thank you to Jake Crossland for the logging. Your podcast consultant, as ever, was Peter Dobbing. And that's all from me. No, uh, no postamble this time either. I will postamble at you soon. My therapist says hello. I told her that um, I was going to be. Uh, I was going to try very hard not to <laughs> effectively live broadcast my own therapy. But that is that's. Thank you to those of you. Thank, I tell you what, we won't postamble. But look, I've got it in front of me now. A few of you have been in touch regarding disappointment, accreting disappointment. Thank you, John, who got in touch. I thought your episode with Kim Noble was great. What a candid guest. I'm sure his sound design version of the episode would have been fascinating, but I'm glad he ended up doing it straight. Much more interesting and inspirational because of it. Um, John started therapy last year to deal with his dad's mental health. Um, That is a very tricky thing to do. Um, he He says... He talks about the fear of letting people down and always assuming everyone felt the same as he did um, and realising that it's not about disappointing his audience so much that he felt lazy. John says, I spoke to my best mate about being lazy, preferring to snooze in the afternoon than do anything constructive after a big break from performing. 
Um, and his friend's saying, I think it's OK if you don't want to do your comedy, write your novel, make your film. But I care about you and I'd be disappointed if you never did anything with your talents. That is uh, a message of goodwill hunting proportions. Thank you for that, John. Um, I appreciate that very much. Also, uh, Helen got in touch. Helen, friend of the show. Great to hear from you. Um, and uh, Helen particularly points out that the Amanda Donnett episode of Child Labour was incredible. It really is. Listen, if you haven't heard that one, I'm sure you're all... Uh, giving child labour a go here and there. We've had some some cracking episodes recently. Uh, Alfie Brown, Ivo Graham, the Sarah Barron one, which goes out any minute now, is wonderful. And we all get very emotional very early on as we cover uh, a little a little reported on aspect of parenting, namely namely the decision, the very hard decision as to whether or not to try for a second child, uh, given the circumstances of already having one. We got right into that. But the Amanda Donnett episode in particular, Amanda is a, a, a viewer of The Infinite Sofa and a member of the SoFam, a friend of mine, uh, sort of a, uh, almost, a, almost a mentor of mine now. But the it is such an interesting episode about disappointment. Go back and listen to that. Helen says, re-disappointing people, this resonates and it has made me think about whether I avoid putting myself forward for stretching stuff so that I don't risk disappointing people. That is the thing, right? So thank you to Helen for getting in touch. And also um, thank you to Vinay who got in touch uh, regarding the Matt Ewins podcast Extras. He's so elusive, says Vinay. It was fascinating to get an insight into how he's pursued his dot, 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 anti-career, question mark. That's about right. Um, Vinay says, I'd only heard about him through the BBC special, thought it was great. So it was interesting to hear him describe his performance as weak. I know, right? I thought it was great as well, but it just goes to show what's going on on the inside is not always reflected on the outside. Um, the interview made him want to check out more of his comedy, and although he would disagree, knowing more about his backstory makes his work all the more intriguing and possibly funnier. Um, and Vinay finishes, chapeau, Goldsmith. Chapeau. <laughs> Can't say fairer than that. Thank you all. Uh, I apologise for not having uh, replied uh, electronically, but there we go. We've mentioned them on the podcast, and that is, is it not a kind of reply? That'll do me for now. Um, thank you for listening. Some corkers in the can with Colt Cabana and Alistair Beckett King. Just booked another raft of uh, excellent comics as well. So I'll keep bringing all of that to you in amongst all of the other stuff. You know, Sarah Millican always says stand-up is the trunk of the tree. It remains the trunk of the tree. But the other trunk of the tree, for me, is this podcast. So as I take on everything else, do not panic that I will not keep smashing these out whenever I'm able. Yeah, disclaimer, whenever I'm able. Coming to you up to once a week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.